Blog Talk Radio. The July 29th, 2016 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's of philosophy, Ayn Rand's philosophy, I can do that, of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I am your host, Amy Peikoff, and if you have gone over on my blog or if you have seen the title here on Blog Talk Radio, I'm saying today our title is It Takes a Village to Destroy America. And most of today's show is going to be devoted to an analysis of Hillary Clinton's acceptance speech from last night. The acceptance speech, yes, that may have put her husband to sleep. Uh, Why I guess this is all old hat to him, but it shouldn't be old hat to you, especially those of you who are actually thinking of voting for Hillary Clinton. And, you know, again, I am sympathetic with those people who want to do an anti-Trump vote. Um, I'm also sympathetic for people who want to do the anti-Hillary vote, and, and we'll see more today. But my own take on this is that we might consider voting for Johnson, or at least supporting him to get into the presidential debates, because I would like to see him alongside these two. I am now calling these two Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, the immoral ones. So if we can have Gary Johnson alongside the immoral ones in the debate, I think that would be a great accomplishment. So do check that out if you can. Uh, Go to my blog at don'tletitgo.com. That's don'tletitgo.com to check out the program notes that I put together for today's show. But as I said, most of it is going to be an analysis of Hillary Clinton's speech from last night. I think, you know, we're presented with these two, Trump and Clinton. I spent last week analyzing his speech, and I thank Hillary Clinton for giving me something to devote my show to today. It's been kind of hectic around here, and to have a show sort of handed to you on a platter, I I really don't mind that. Now, was it really handed to me on a platter? Not so much. Don't worry, I didn't actually watch the speech. There's a little clip uh, in some of the YouTube that I shared with you at the program notes where you can actually hear Hillary giving part of the speech. And, and it's the one where arguably her husband, Bill, is falling asleep. Um, and it's right when she's talking about Donald Trump. So it's pretty funny. So I got a little sample of what it must have sounded like to listen to this speech in person. And I started to be sympathetic with those who apparently made a dash 
after it was over and left the DNC pretty much empty. That's another YouTube clip that you can see at the blog at don'tletitgo.com. How empty the DNC was at prime time right after the nomination. So, uh, no, what did I do? I went, my usual standby is go get the text, print the darn thing out, and analyze it from there. So that's what I've done. You could say, okay, I took one for the team. I did by reading the thing, but I didn't suffer through the actual delivery of it. Maybe you'll be glad to know that. So, yeah, again, don'tletitgo.com. If you want to follow along with the text, I've got CNN's version, which I assume is accurate, of the text of her speech. Um, So let me just kind of without further ado, go ahead and start going through it. I will invite you if you want to call and talk about it with me later, call in at 760-888-5817. And if you want to give me your comments at the end of this, you can tell me if my analysis is all washed up or something else. But otherwise, I'm going to go through this. Uh, At the beginning, of course, all she's doing is thanking everybody and making herself seem like a human being. She already is starting to rewrite reality at the outset of the speech by saying that America is stronger because of President Obama's leadership. Uh, She also goes on to say she's better because of his friendship, which may or may not be true. Uh, But certainly America is not stronger under President Obama's leadership, if if that's what you call it. Uh, She cites uh, Michelle Obama reminding us that our children are watching. You know, you better be very careful who you vote for because your children are watching, you know, gets you to think it's very serious. Um, Thanks Bernie Sanders. She's trying to appeal to Bernie Sanders supporters, telling them that the country needs their ideas, energy, and passion. She doesn't necessarily say that she's going to incorporate any of the particular things on which Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton uh, disagree. And I imagine there's quite a bit of that. But, you know, she says, the only way that we can turn our progressive platform into real change for America is to get the ideas, energy, and passion. She just wants them on board. Why? Because, as we'll see, it does. It takes a village to destroy America. She's going to need those Bernie Sanders supporters to help her destroy America. Uh, Then she goes into, okay, well, they're there at Philadelphia, right? This is where the convention is. And she says, you know, oh, imagine this. What happened in the city 240 years ago still has something to teach us today. You know, if she's being generous or something, it's like, yeah, we could still learn something from them. The idea that we might not be able to learn something from the founding of our country is, you know, that, that, that that's even plausible is a version of the ad hominem fallacy. But she's saying, no, no, you know, yeah, we still have something. Uh, that we can learn from it. But the, as we'll see, the things that she chooses to learn from it are actual mischaracterizations of what went on at the founding of our country. It, it, it's a, a wrong emphasis about the essence of the founding of our country. We heard uh, good things about the essence of the founding of our country from Ted Cruz at the Republican National Convention. Of course, he was booed and hissed and everything else. But uh, you know, if, if if you listen to that, he says, yes, what was our country founded on? An idea. But if you listen to Hillary Clinton, then you would think that it's not founded on an idea. 
basically freedom or individual rights. Freedom is the word that Ted Cruz used repeatedly in his speech, but really it is the principle of individual rights upon which our country was founded. Uh, Instead, what she says is, you know, some people wanted to stick with the king and some people wanted to stick it to the king. And what did they do? They compromised. It was all about compromise. And what did our founders embrace? She says the enduring truth that we are stronger together, right? Now, it is true that people had very differing ideas of what should have been done at that particular moment in time, what she'll call a moment of reckoning. But the idea that you get out of that, that it's all about compromise and that in order to actually make any progress, you have to embrace collectivism, this idea that we are, quote, stronger together, as she keeps saying, is completely wrong. Our founders, they ended up banding together for a common cause, but they delimited it. And as we'll see with Hillary Clinton, she does not want us to band together for a delimited common cause, namely the protection of all of our rights to pursue our happiness. She doesn't want that at all. She wants out-and-out socialism, and that's what we're going to see as we go through her speech. Uh, But she wants to twist what our founders did uh, as them embracing the idea that we are stronger together. And no, the fundamental truth that the founders embraced is that we all have a right to the pursuit of our own happiness. Happiness is an individual thing that only individuals with rights can pursue. And our founders understood that. Hillary Clinton is trying to evade that throughout this speech. Um, She says, now America is once again at a moment of reckoning. So is now like the time in which our founders were contemplating revolution against the king. Uh, You know, indeed, we might, some of us might actually think there is a need for a revolution. Some people are calling for an Article 5 convention that they think that the changes that are needed are so drastic that we need something like that, that we can't just have a change in leadership within the current constitutional framework, that we need to make major changes in the Constitution. Not so many people think it's actually time for a revolution uh, at, at this point, but, you know, maybe you think you do. Certainly not with Trump as the representative So, you know, the way I would see it, if we're having a moment of reckoning and you've got somebody saying, let's stick with the king and somebody saying, let's stick it to the king, I would say Hillary is saying, let's stick with the king. Let's just let Hillary Clinton continue the work of Barack Obama, nihilistically destroying our country. That's the kind of, you know, platform that she's putting forward. That's the plan of action that she's putting forward. And if anybody wants to stick it to the king, per se, it's Trump. But Trump is doing it in a misguided way not uh, not guided by the proper ideology, which is what we'd have if our nominee had been Ted Cruz. <sighs> she talks about the fact that Donald Trump wants to divide us. Obama has divided us. He has divided us by class. He has divided us by race. Um, and he also has divided people by religion due to his policies, right? He's made religious people feel on the defensive due to his policies. Um, Now, she does say some true things about Donald Trump, that his speech could be seen as a, you know, taking the Republican Party from morning in America to midnight in America. 
He wants us to fear the future and fear each other. So, of course, she brings in Roosevelt's line, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And it is true that the fear that Trump is stirring up in an attempt to get you to have faith in him as your voice with no proper ideology guiding him is a scary thing. Uh, The answer, my friends, though, is not Hillary Clinton. And that's what we're going to see here. Now, she says that what are we going to do? We're not going to build a wall. We're going to build an economy where everyone who wants a good paying job can get one. Now, first of all, not everyone who wants a good paying job can get one. The fact that you want something doesn't mean you can get it when there's two participants required, like in an employer-employee relationship. That you might want a good paying job, but you can only get one if there's an employer willing to pay you. So you're not going to be able to ever have that situation unless, of course, you have government mandating the giving of a good paying job whenever anybody wants one. And maybe that's what she has in mind. Some of the things that she says in her speech indicate that it is not government's job to build an economy. You can leave people free so that they can build an economy And certainly anybody with a proper domestic policy is going to be in favor of that. Uh, She says, build a path to citizenship for millions of immigrants. And, And so what she's saying is, you have an alternative. You can either have Trump, who wants to build a wall and completely shut off immigration in a sort of protectionist, almost xenophobic for some people way, or her alternative is build a path to citizenship. And why do you want to do this? She says, because there are millions of immigrants who are already contributing to our economy. She wants to build an economy. And little, I mean, I'm sure Hillary Clinton understands this, but she wants them to all be citizens so they can vote Democratic. We know this stuff. But it is possible to allow millions of immigrants to contribute to our economy while still not making it easy for them to become citizens, right? We can do the proper screening. We can require them to go through the proper screening before they can even be legal to work here. But we don't have to give them citizenship. We can make that a high hurdle, as Jerome Brooke has talked about on his show. She says also, we will not ban a religion. Now, it's not my job to tell you whether you should actually ban Islam, but there are ideas in Islam that are inimical to human life and in particular to a, any sort of a Western free society. And there are way too many people who take those parts of their religion seriously. Do you need to ban the entire religion to solve the problem? I will leave that to other experts. But this idea you know, that you categorically say you will not even consider the necessity of banning a religion that has brought so much death and destruction around the world, that is, irresponsible. I don't know if Gary Johnson still has it on his website, but when I went before he had declared with Johnson Weld, right, when it was Johnson's own website, and you go under the issues, he actually talked about the problem of Sharia ideology, that he even recognized that there is this component, a substantial component of Islam, namely the Sharia ideology, as he calls it, that poses a threat to our freedom and safety and security. Uh, So, you know, this idea that, oh, you can just say, oh, well, we're not going to ban it and everything is great is just false. Um, She says, we'll work with all Americans and our allies to fight terrorism. It's the working with allies 
that has got us in trouble. And it's the, the fact that working with our allies has gotten us in trouble that makes you a little more sympathetic to where Gary Johnson is, is coming from on foreign policy. I, I have concerns about where he is, obviously, but I am very concerned about continuing to work with our so-called allies. Uh, she says there's too much inequality in our country. And, of course, what does she want to do? She wants to use government force to equalize. And, you know, because you cannot use force to give people equal talents, equal work ethics, and everything else, the only thing you can do is you can use force to try to ensure equality of outcome, which is a a purely socialist and and collectivist ideal, as we see. Um, You know, she talks about the good things about America. We have the most powerful military. Uh, Yeah, it is true. We still have the most powerful military, but people like Hillary Clinton have been working to cripple our military, both in matter, in terms of the financial investment in military that they're willing to make out of the budget. They're always cutting the budget of military, and more importantly, in spirit. And this has been true of both Democrats and Republicans, but more so Democrats, that they embrace just war theory, which yields totally immoral rules of engagement. We need to stop it. Um, She says we have the most innovative entrepreneurs. What does she want to do with those entrepreneurs? She wants to shackle them. She wants to tell them how they should do their business. Um, She says uh, we have the most enduring values. And then look at the pairings that she does here. Freedom and equality. Freedom and equality. She pairs those together. So, you know, the idea is she's not going to let you have freedom unless Equality is met up to her standards. And by equality, she does not mean equality before the law. Everybody should be treated equally before the law in terms of having the right to a jury in a criminal case and all the different things that are required for the, you know, the law to treat you fairly uh, along with your fellow citizens. But she means actually equality in terms of so-called distributive justice, the Rawlsian idea of equality. And then she says, justice and opportunity. And opportunity in the way that she means it is also an opposite, right? Because justice, if employers are going to apply the virtue of justice, and you can read John Allison's book on this, uh, but if, if the employer applies the virtue of justice, he is going to give jobs and salary and bonuses and everything else according to the merit you know, the, the profitability of having that employee. But by opportunity, she actually means to give to people opportunities that are other than what the employer would choose to do on his own, applying the, the virtue of justice. She can't handle just the idea of freedom and justice. That reminds me of Superman by, for some reason. But yeah, freedom and justice, you can't have just that. You have to temper freedom with its opposite as she means it, which is equality, and justice with its opposite as she means it, which is opportunity. Uh, but then she says, no, you know, our country is great because it's founded on these. And she says, don't believe anyone who says, I alone can fix it, which is true. And it's also true, as she says, that if he uses those words, if Trump uses those words, this should set off alarm bells for all of us. That's fine. But then she goes into her 
pandering, you know, oh, the only he alone can do it. Isn't he forgetting all of these other people who do these great things around the world, police officers, doctors, teachers, entrepreneurs, mothers, etc. He says, she says, uh, she says, Americans don't say I alone can fix it. We say we'll fix it together. And she's using this, you know, again, this is a false alternative because he's saying I alone. And he does. He has demagogue tendencies to him, Trump, and he is a scary guy. But the alternative is not to mesh yourself into a collective where everybody else's needs is a mortgage on your own. Everybody else's wants are a mortgage on your own, which is apparently where she's at, right? Because if you want a good paying job, you should get it. Even if somebody else doesn't voluntarily want to give it to you, she is going to write a law that's going to make that happen. Uh, But this is, again, a false alternative. You don't have to have Hillary Clinton as your alternative to Donald Trump. Now, this is interesting, right? Because now she's going to bring in, again, she's going to invoke the founding. And she talks about the fact that our founders wrote a constitution so that America, in her words, would never be a nation where one person had all the power. And that's true. She's referring to our system of checks and balances. And she says, and she's, she thinks that she's advocating something that's in the tradition of checks and balances and consistent with the motivation for checks and balances. This is what she goes on to say. She says, 240 years later, we still put our faith in each other. All she's doing is she's saying, well, it's not one person, it's a collective. We put our faith in each other. First of all, in the United States, you never put your faith in anybody else. You leave each people, each person free to deal with other people as they see fit. You have a right to associate with someone else or to be free of any interaction or interference from them, unless you've made some sort of a contractual arrangement or something like that, then you may have to, you know, some kind of limited obligation. But we have freedom of association and as a corollary freedom of disassociation. And this is not it. She says, no, we put faith in each other. And the idea of putting faith in somebody else is wrong, of course. And the wrongness of that idea is exactly the reason that the framers had to put checks and balances in our system. Right. If you could just operate on in faith on other people, then why not have one person have all the power? You know, it's ridiculous. So this this idea does not follow at all. You know that we started out with a system of checks and balances and now we put our faith in each other. It's not an issue of faith. It's an issue of setting up a system with checks and balances. So you don't have faith. You have a check on it. Uh, It is the case that the Republicans have been very guilty, for example, of under Obama, not executing their power that they have under our system of checks and balances. They have not held Obama and his spending in particular in check. It has been very sad. Uh, You know, but this whole idea is that we don't have faith in other people. We want to have a check on that. You know, this is this is also why, just incidentally, that you need to have a right to bear arms, to keep and bear arms, and that that in part is due to the fact that we need a check on our government. Even if, in general, we think that government is good, 
that it is necessary to have government to protect individual rights, and that in you know we think that for the foreseeable future, our government is not going to drastically take away those rights to such an extent that we would want to engage in an armed revolt, even if all of that is true. You you can't just rest on the idea of like, oh, well, we made a delegation of power. Uh, or we delegate our power of self-defense and everything's peachy keen and fine and dandy. The The fact that you retain arms as a check on that doesn't mean that you think any less of the necessity of government. It doesn't mean that you think any less of the ability in the near future for our government to protect our rights. It means that it is right for you to have a check on these things. Even if you think the people that you're working with are good people, you have a contract with them. You don't sit there with no ability to enforce the the agreements that you have. Um, now people are talking about coffee and stuff. I don't know in in the chat room here. Uh, tea versus coffee is that what we're doing? We're gonna the the the, the coffee party, so to speak. Um, Okay, so then she goes in to talk about how people in America do have faith in each other. And she even cites her book, It Takes a Village. Um, She says, none of us can raise a family, build a business, heal a community, or lift a country totally alone. America needs every one of us to lend our energy, our talents, ambition, et cetera, to make our nation better and stronger. Okay, yes, other people can be of value, but... Anybody who understands how others can be of value to you know that it can be only on certain terms. So, for example, she can't say, America needs every one of us, so therefore I'm going to conscript you to help us out. But in some of the concrete proposals that she has in this speech, she does talk about conscripting people to do things that they're not necessarily willing to do on their own. How are other people of value to you? Other people are of value to you in terms of the ability to share knowledge, to trade for those things for which you have a comparative advantage, right? Um, So that you can do the thing that you are most productive at doing and, and trade with other people for the other things that you need. But only if you get to do this voluntarily are these other people of value. And I would say that if Hillary Clinton gets her way and gets all of her proposals that she's got in this speech, that you are going to start resenting your fellow man. She says, stronger together is a guiding principle for the country we've always been and the future we're going to build. And I say the way that she's meaning stronger together, which is not in a teamwork sense, where we all agree for a delimited purpose to bond together voluntarily to get a certain job done or, say, to create a government that actually protects our rights. She means bound together, where someone else's need is a claim on your life. That's what she means. That's how she means stronger together. And you can see that, again, in the concrete policies that we'll look at. But, you know, she says this is the country we've always been. Simply not true. You could not have a right to the pursuit of happiness in our Declaration of Independence if the essence of our country is stronger together in the way that she means it. And then she says the future that we're going to build. And this is her image. This is the future that she wants. And you guys can decide whether you want to vote for it. Uh, She wants a country where the economy works for everyone. This is 
stealing a line from Obama. She accepts her nomination with humility, ha, determination, et cetera. We'll skip over that stuff. Um, and then she says, well, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about me. She says, you know, you, you guys don't really know what to make of me. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. And, you know, she talks about her family and her uh, grandfather and father, her, her mother who had to work on her own, was uh, her, her parents abandoned her and stuff, all the, all the stories. Um, but she uses her family background again to bring home her message. And her message is this, no one gets through life alone. No one gets through life alone. This is a different sort of fear mongering, right? With Trump, it is be afraid of all the horrible things that are going on right now. And I alone have the solution. And she says, look, here are some examples where people were helped through either the kindness or just the giving of an opportunity from other people. And she uses this to draw the line. No one gets through life alone. And this is a different type of fear-mongering. You're supposed to be scared to try to do things on your own, and you're supposed to bind yourself in a collective with everybody else as a result. Uh, She says we have to look out for each other and lift each other up. You have to. It is a duty. And where does she get this? She brings it from her Methodist faith that she goes on to cite. Do all the good you can for all the people you can and all the ways you can as long as ever you can. A life of servitude is what she has envisioned for us. Uh, she talks about her work with nonprofits, in particular the Children's Defense Fund, which I guess was instrumental to creating a right to go to school, a right to go to school for kids with a disability. And that is, you know, if, if you're going to educate a child with a disability, depending on what the disability is, it might cost a tremendous amount of money in order to accommodate the child to, you know, not disrupt the rest of the class, all the different considerations that you have when running a school. Nonetheless, Hillary Clinton was instrumental in helping to force a right to go to school for kids with disabilities. Now, if you have public education already, you could see how, you know, you, the next step is just to give every child a right to go to school regardless of disability, et cetera. But, you know, it, it's, it's instructive when she's talking about trying to make progress towards this goal of hers, creating a right, right, a right to an education. Education is a complex intellectual product provided by other people. How can you be born with a right to that? And the answer is you cannot be born with a right to that consistent with a right to the pursuit of happiness. But nonetheless, Hillary doesn't believe in that. It's not, you know, our country is not about the pursuit of happiness. It's about stronger together for her. So what does she say here? If you're going to drive real progress towards a goal like this, she says to drive real progress, you have to change both hearts and laws. And here she's making a dig at Republicans, right? Because, Republicans often do believe that they have this moral duty, but they think you change people's hearts and then people will out of the goodness of their heart donate and do the thing that they have a moral duty to do. And she says, no, no, no. To get real progress, you have to change both hearts and laws. And what does she mean by laws? 
you know, I don't like Ron Paul at all, but one thing I always liked that he did in the debate was bring home the fact that government is force. If you're going to pass a law in order to achieve a certain goal of yours, that means that you are using government force to achieve that goal, in this case, to make progress. She says you need both understanding and action, and by that she means government action, government force. Nonetheless, her heart swelled when she saw the product of her labor, which is, again, other people are being forced to pay to provide a very expensive, in some cases, education for children with disabilities. And this is people other than the parents or people other than those who would willingly donate. There are many people who would willingly donate to a charity that would allow disabled children to get an education. But no, that's that's not enough for Hillary, right? Uh, she talks about the fact that she sweats the details of policy. Uh, and it's true that Trump doesn't sweat the details of any policy. And if you want a president, you want a Trump that, uh, you know, a president that actually does look at the details. But the details that she talks about, just even in this little paragraph, are details about which government should not be concerned. It's not their job. So what is the exact level of lead in the drinking water in Flint, Michigan? I submit that water should be done privately and that government should be concerned with the level of lead in that drinking water only if there's been misrepresentations about it. Or you could say, okay, they're poisoning them or something. Okay, fine. Um, much more accountability in that system, by the way, where you could just sue and then the courts would take care of it, right? Uh, the number of mental health facilities in Iowa, should that be government's concern? No. The cost of your prescription drugs, she says. Nope, that shouldn't be government's concern either. But nonetheless, these are the details that she tells you she should be concerned with. Uh, she talks about people who have inspired her, you know, in her drive to force government to, quote, make progress. And here she's appealing to the emotion. She's asking you to recall the heart-wrenching stories of people who have been helped, supposedly, by government force. You know that can't be done, right? Um she talks about the when her plan for universal health care failed and she was kept going on by the inspiring stories of these and other people. She's telling you she will push for universal health care as president. Of course, there's not much more of a push to be made, by the way. Uh, you can see in the news pretty much every week, every other week, yet another private health insurer has decided to leave the market because it can no longer actually sell insurance under Obamacare profitably. They've all been losing money. And if they haven't been losing money, they've been increasing the premiums by outrageous amounts every single year. So it's only a matter of time before we see more consolidation and one easy step to her dream, which is universal health care. Uh, she even manages to co-opt and invoke Obama's call to kill Osama bin Laden, because she talks about the fact that, you know, she, uh, I was thinking of these people in the situation room. I guess she wasn't there, but she was thinking of them. You know, she, she gets to invoke that and make you all excited about how Obama killed Osama bin Laden. She, you know, tries to get you to recall that emotion during her acceptance speech, that you'll just carry that emotion with you and right to the polls and vote for her. She, she does give a good speech, right? So she, another thing that she says, 
contra Trump. She says, I will carry all of your voices and stories with me to the White House. Contrast that with Trump, who says, I am your voice. Um, And she says, uh, I'm going to be a president for everybody, for those who vote for me and those who don't. Well, that's a given. She should be. Uh, And then she goes a little bit into the whole woman thing. She doesn't make too much about this. Uh, Thankfully, she doesn't go too much into that. But, you know, she says everyone should be happy and we're not going to stop until 161 million women and girls across America have the opportunity they deserve. Now, how is she going to do this? First of all, she says, okay, let's, what are we going to do to help working people in our country? And she begins by thanking Obama and Biden, because supposedly Obama and Biden have saved us from the worst economic crisis of our lifetimes. You and I, as we're listening here, beg to differ. We have watched the employment statistics over the year and as much as our uh, over the years that Obama has been in office. And as much as they like to massage those statistics and make it look as if jobs are being created under Obama and the unemployment situation is not that bad, we know that those statistics often do not reflect the number of people who have dropped out of the labor market entirely. And we know that the labor force participation rate has been in the tank forever under Obama. So that's garbage. The other thing that's garbage, of course, is the amount of debt that has been racked up under Obama. I think they're saying it's going to be $20 trillion by the time he leaves office. It's really, really horrible. So, I, you know, and so under Hillary, under Trump, both are going to continue this policy of racking up huge amounts of debt. Uh, she says our, our economy is so much stronger than when they took office. And she cites the new jobs, right? And then she says um, there are 20 million more Americans with health insurance. Of course, the health insurance market is collapsing entirely. So you might be able to take a snapshot, right? <sighs> Auto industry has had its best year ever. I don't know that that really matters very much in the grand scheme of things, but go ahead and cite it in your speech to make everything look wonderful. Uh, but she says, you know, everyone's frustrated. They want to have their work respected, et cetera. She says, what we're going to do, she says, we're going to empower Americans to live better lives. How can government empower anyone to do anything? Again, government can either choose to apply force or not apply force. And, of course, the only moral Uh, application of force that government can do is in retaliation against those people who initiate force. But that's not what she's talking about. She's talking about government initiating force to achieve certain ends. Government cannot empower people, right? All government can do is force. And, uh, but let's see how she thinks that it, that it can. She says, first, she's going to create more opportunity and more good jobs with rising wages. You know, again, all she's got is a gun. You should let the market decide about, you know, where it's going to be. She talks about, you know, going to certain places that have been left behind, small towns, Indian country, coal country. The market should be deciding where any economic revival is going to take place. If we take government constraints off of our economy, it will grow. 
where will the boom be experienced? Probably in some of the places that have been the most desolate. Why? Because it's probably the cheapest to regenerate in those areas, maybe. But it's not government's job to pick and choose where the economic revival is going to take place. And yet she wants to be the one to do this. Uh, something, something that is very alarming to those of us, and, and you've heard me on this show talk about the importance of freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and one of a you know the most important types of expression that you can have is expression about political topics and political candidates. And the Citizens United decision was a very important decision that protects the ability to finance political speech, which we should have the right to do. Ted Cruz understood this. He gave a whole speech on the floor of the Senate about an hour long talking about the importance of allowing people to band together in corporations, organizations, et cetera, and fund political speech. That This is a perfectly legal and moral thing to allow. Nonetheless, what does Hillary promise to do? She promises to pass a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. That means she is going to try to get a, a constitutional amendment that is going to undo the First Amendment of the United States. That alone should be scary enough that you would not want to vote for her. But let's go on. Uh, she says, American corporations have gotten so much from our country, they, they should be just as patriotic in return. And how is it that they are failing to be patriotic? They are taking tax breaks, as she says, taking tax breaks. Translation, keeping more of their own money that they earned, right? They're not giving it over at the point of a gun. They're taking tax breaks. And then, on, you know, that's on the one hand. And then on the other hand, they're giving out pink slips. They're firing people. What's her translation? She wants the government to force companies to pay employees who are not profitable for them to employ, uh, she wants to create good-paying, clean energy jobs. If you look at the recent news about the clean coal debacle, and if you go back and even further and remember Solyndra, you know how many good-paying, clean energy jobs could actually be created by government, which is about zero. And then she talks about the immigrants. It would be self-defeating and inhumane to kick them out. And I say, yes, you know, if you have hardworking peaceful immigrants living here. Don't kick them out. But again, what is her plan? Give them a path to citizenship. Make them Democratic voters. False alternative. Now, here's the first outright socialist statement that she makes in the speech. She says, you should join us, quote, if you believe that companies should share profits with their workers, not pad executive bonuses. The idea of forcing companies to share profits with the workers is, of course, a very socialist idea. Minimum wage, she says, should be a living wage. No one working full-time should have to raise their children in poverty. Um, every man, woman, and child has the right to affordable health care per Hillary. If you believe that, you should go ahead and vote for her and join her. Go back to Leonard Peikoff's speech, I believe it was 93, if I'm right. Healthcare is not a right for an answer to that. You know, he's, he talks about the fact that healthcare is a complex, technologically advanced 
human product. And he asked the question, how could anybody be born with a right to something that like that? Nonetheless, she wants to say that there is. And, and then she's got just as much protectionism in her as Donald Trump. We should say no to unfair trade deals, stand up to China, support our steel workers and auto workers and homegrown manufacturers. You know, to a certain extent, I've talked with a caller about this in the past. I think it was Ed that there may be a national security interest in keeping certain manufacturing industries going in the United States. And insofar as it serves a security interest, then yes, you'd say, okay, that would be within the proper scope of government. But beyond that, no, not, not so much. Uh, and then listen to this pairing, right? She, she does all of these, you know, sort of complex pairings. It's, you know, it's, it's like a complex question. Do you believe in these two things together? And you can't separate them, right? She's giving you these package deals. She says, uh, do you, if you believe that we should expand Social Security and protect a woman's right to make her own health care decisions, join us. She knows damn well that there are many of us who believe that you should protect a woman's right to make her own health care decisions, but we do not believe that you should expand Social Security. We know that that is a failing program that's not going to be there for most of us, and it's essentially slavery. But no, go ahead and expand it. And if you believe in expanding that, then that's you know the only way that you're going to protect a woman's right to make her own health care decisions. You have to join us. And, of course, I want to say no. We're going to go for some other alternative. Uh, If you believe all women deserve equal pay, you should join them. And, and again, equal pay for equal work, morally speaking, sure. Should government force it? No way. Make sure the economy, quote, works for everyone. You know, again, define work. Now, what does she plan to do right away when she's first in office? First 100 days. She says, we'll work with both parties to pass the biggest investment investment in new good-paying jobs since World War II. A huge, huge kind of, you know, government shovel-ready jobs sort of build. And actually, it's not just shovel-ready jobs, right, because it's not just shoveling, manufacturing, clean energy. Again, go look at the clean coal debacle for the latest example of government investment in clean energy and what that yields. Technology and innovation, right, because companies like Boom, for example, I was reading some awesome news about Boom, the new supersonic air flight company out there. They're doing it in the private sector, They can do it without government. Thank you very much. Technology and innovation, if you leave them free, will continue. Small business and infrastructure. She wants to invest, invest in all these things. And what does she mean by invest? Steal money from you to spend in the ways that suit her fancy. All of those ways. Then she says, Bernie Sanders and I are going to work together to make college tuition free for the middle class and debt-free for all, right? And that's, again, more debt, more taxes. She says, we will liberate millions of people who already have student debt. She's talking about liberating. Um, liberating means giving them free money. And if you're going to, quote, liberate somebody by giving them supposedly free money, what are you doing, on the other hand? You are shackling those 
who have either lent the money in the past or are going to have to pay the money in taxes in the future. She's talking about a forced refinance at terms that the lender would not agree to voluntarily. She says we're going to help more people learn a skill or practice uh, or learn a skill or practice a trade and make a good living as an alternative to a four-year education. Again, that's fine. We don't all need a four-year education. Mike Rowe has been out there educating people about the virtues of this for a long time, but this is not government's job. People like Mike Rowe can do this out in the private sector. Uh, Then she wants to help small business by making it easier to get credit. Again, forcing lenders to do business on terms that they wouldn't otherwise agree to, except for that they have a government gun pointed at them, or you have the government offering to, uh, you know, bail them out in the case of a collapse, which you're going to have. You're going to have a collapse if you do not let a free market decide what those lending decisions should be. Uh, She says, in America, if you can dream it, you should be able to build it. And my answer time and again is not with government force as an adjunct to your own effort. That is not moral. Um, She says, we're not only going to make all these investments, we're going to pay for every single one of them. How are you going to pay for it? Wall Street corporations and the super rich are going to start paying their fair share of taxes. They're just going to steal it. They're going to steal it from Wall Street corporations and the super rich, and they think they're going to have a vibrant economy as a result. She says, if companies take tax tax breaks and then ship jobs overseas, we'll make them pay us back. Again, take tax breaks. You mean keep more of their own money. Refuse to hand it over at the government gun. Anyway, um, she says, now, some of you are sitting at home thinking, well, that all sounds pretty good. And this is exactly the point where she says this. And I'm like, no, to whom does this sound good? Not me. Uh, and then she talks about, let's go and criticize Donald Trump. Donald Trump has refused to pay his bills. He's gone bankrupt and everything. He wants you to put your faith in him. And, of course, she's right about that. But look what she's saying as the alternative. Um, he says America first, but she makes every, you know, he makes everything overseas. While I, and um, she has a great line here. She says, Donald Trump says he wants to make America great again. Well, he could start by actually making things in America again. And it's a good line, right? You know, if it's America first, why is he shipping all of his jobs overseas? It, you know, it is, is very hypocritical what he's talking about. Little does he know that he was practicing Americanism by doing that, by, you know, giving the jobs wherever it makes most sense for him profitability-wise, but no. Then she talks about national security. We have determined enemies that must be defeated. And then she says we are stronger when we work with our allies around the world. And again, it's this collectivist idea, regardless of whether these people are really allies now, like, for example, Saudi Arabia, for example, um, Saudi Arabia, who I gather has contributed some to her campaign and who is not really an ally who was behind 9-11, but no, allies, work with our allies. She says, we have put a lid on Iran's nuclear program without firing a single shot. What does put a lid mean? She uses this expression so she can't be held accountable for saying anything in particular. She says, we have to keep supporting Israel's security. 
ha ha, as if we've done that under Obama. Obama has done whatever he could to undercut our ally, Israel. Uh, We've shaped a global climate agreement. Now, notice that she's talking about the global climate agreement in the context of national security. All of these leftists are saying that, you know, climate change is a national security issue, which, as we all know, is a bunch of BS. Um, How are we going to defeat ISIS? She's got a strategy. We're going to strike their sanctuaries from the air. What does sanctuary mean? It is vague. And it's probably worded in such a way that she can say that it's going to be targets that have no, you know, uh, risk of civilian, so-called civilian casualties or innocent civilians being harmed. And then she says, we're going to support local forces who are taking ISIS out on the ground. She's going to pursue, again, another campaign of arming our enemies. And then she says, we will surge our intelligence. So we will detect and prevent attacks before they happen. Remember, she is going to love the NSA. She's going to use the NSA. Who knows? She may have, I mean, you know, again, this is conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory alert. Did she use the NSA to strong strong arm uh, Bernie Sanders into endorsing her? Who knows? I don't know. But she is a woman who would use the NSA to go after her political enemies. So this idea that she's going to surge our intelligence in the name of national security, not just that. Uh, Disrupt the efforts of ISIS online. She plans to disrupt not only efforts of ISIS online, and she probably won't do that very well. Her main thing is to disrupt the efforts of people like me and you online, because she is an enemy of freedom of expression. This is, you know, no doubt. And there is actually one more comment that she makes in the speech about that that we'll get to in a minute. Uh, Then she talks about in terms of foreign policy, she asks a legitimate question. Does Donald Trump have the temperament to be commander in chief? Of course, we all know the answer is no. She says, imagine him in the Oval Office facing a real crisis. A man you can bait with a tweet is not a man we can trust with nuclear weapons. Great line. Very true. Again, I don't want my alternative to be Hillary. Uh, She talks about the type of commander in chief she plans to be. Strength relies on smarts, judgment, cool resolve, and the precise and strategic application of power. What what happened in Benghazi then? This is what I want to know. Is that what strategic application of power is? When you make the, uh, the call, you call off the forces to protect your men overseas. Um, Then she talks about, you know, gun control and stuff. I'm not here to take away your guns. She says, I just don't want you to be shot by someone who shouldn't have a gun in the first place. And who does she not want to have guns? She doesn't want criminals to have it, terrorists, and others, all others who would do us harm. She wants to be able to define who those people are, and I bet it's not going to be an objective method of defining them. Um, Then she talks about needing to bring people together, systemic racism, et cetera. What are we going to do? She says, we will reform our criminal justice system from end to end. Sounds a little scary and ominous. I'd like to see what she thinks she has planned. Um, And then she says, we will defend all our rights, civil rights, human rights, and voting rights, women's rights, and workers' rights, LGBT rights and the right of people with disabilities. So she's telling you 
if you want your rights defended, get into a group that she identifies as having rights to be protected and identify yourself with a group and use that group as a pressure group to get what you want from government. Throw yourself in a group. That's how you'll get it. Uh, quick, right after, this is, this is the very next little line or paragraph, as you call it. She makes it very clear, though. The right to free speech is not included in the civil rights, human rights, voting rights, et cetera. She says, we will stand up. This is Hillary Clinton's words. She says, we will stand up against mean and divisive rhetoric wherever it comes from. Mean and divisive rhetoric. This is a warning. If, if you are a purveyor of what she would call mean and divisive rhetoric, say like this show where I'm criticizing her, Probably it's going to be made harder on you in one way or the other. I mean, she's going to keep the IRS and all those tools of, of government pressure. When she talks about Donald Trump again, he's offering empty promises. What is she offering instead? A bold agenda to improve the lives of people across the country. Um, and, you know, basically the choice is clear. It's, it's her over Donald Trump. And I say, no, maybe you would like to consider Gary Johnson. Uh, she makes a little stab about how you have to stand up to bullies. Trump does come across as a bully. It's a little pep talk here. She gives you an appeal to emotion. She talks about the fact that she lost her mother a few years ago and she misses her. And she can hear her mother's voice urging her to keep working, keep fighting for right no matter what, etc. cetera. Um, and then... She quotes from the musical Hamilton, which I unfortunately have not seen. I hope I get a chance to see it. She says, though, quote, we may not live to see the glory as the song from the musical Hamilton goes, quote, let us gladly join the fight. And, you know, Ayn Rand talked about that he who fights for the future lives in it today to a certain extent, even if you don't get to see that future. But that is Ayn Rand someone who's actually fighting for the right ideas, the ideas that are, you know, uh, supportive of human life. Hillary is promoting ideas and policies that are inimical to human life and in, inimical to the rights of humans as individuals. Uh, she talks about our founders again at the end. She invokes them. She says, that's why we're here, not just in this hall, but on this earth, you know, to plant seeds in a garden that you never get to see. Um, she says, all of these people have been drawn together by love of country, uh, our founders in particular, she says, and the selfless passion to build something better for all who follow. No, 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 not selfless, selfish. Those of us who are fighting for the future, we could be fighting for children or just other people who we think are going to be like us in the future. And we want, you know, to have the idea that at some point there's going to be a free United States. But to the extent that we're working to make the world a better place, as John Allison always talks about, you know, everybody's mission is in a certain way to make the world a better place. But it's not selfless to work to make a world a better place. In some ways, it gives you the satisfaction of doing something against evil. Now, in some ways, you're going to get to see some changes within your lifetime. I've talked about that on this show before. But also, there may be people who are younger than you who are going to live past you that you care about. You know, Even if you don't have children yourself, you can have nieces and nephews and 
you know, cousins and, and everything else that you would like to see thrive, that you, you care about. It is not selfless, but nonetheless, she twists our founding. We, she twists what the founding fathers did and, you know, puts it into her together, not in the sense of teamwork, which is a very rational thing for people to do who have freedom of association. No, she wants us to bind ourselves to each other in a big, nasty collective mass where others' needs are a claim on our lives. That is the vision that she has. And it's after reading the speech that I thought, okay, I'm going to title the show Hillary Clinton's Collectivist America. And that is really the vision that she lays out. She tries to paint our past as having a collectivist root uh, in, in our founding, which is completely wrong. And she is painting a picture of a future that will be increasingly collectivist and egalitarian and nihilist if you vote for her. So I leave it to you. You know, again, we have what's called, and a friend of mine corrected me on this, I used to call it a Hobson's choice between Hillary Clinton and, and Donald Trump. And in effect, what we do have is what a friend educated me about. It's called a Morton's Fork, two equally undesirable options. But thankfully, we do have a third option. We have a third option. I don't know how far or realistic this third option is, Gary Johnson, but what I do know is I would like to see him at least be given a shot in the debates. I don't even know if I would want to watch the debates if it's between Hillary Clinton and Donald. I guess I have to watch at least one to, to see how the dy- dynamic is. But if you could have Gary Johnson in the mix, if you, you could have somebody who is not evil on the stage with the immoral ones, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, I would like to see it. Uh, Rob in the chat room talks about the line that uh, Clinton had toward the end about selflessness, how our founders were motivated by selflessness. And he says, I just don't see that selflessness is capable of motivating any emotion strong enough to be considered passion. Yes, I agree. And in fact, in Ayn Rand's writings, she dramatizes what happens to people who have devoted their lives to selfless, so-called selfless service and what sort of hulks of numbness they end up being toward the end of their lives. Yeah, Sally says, yeah, she wants power. Don't deal with reality. Directly control the people you can, who can. You know, as long as she says that she's carrying everyone's voice with her as she's wielding that government sword or gun or however you want to, you know, get, make a metaphor for it actually not just a metaphor because the the guns will come after you the irs has how many guns it's really revulsifying anyway if you do want to call in and comment on hillary's speech or i've also got some of the other program notes that we're going to go through at don'tletitgo.com you can do so there are a number of people here online if you do want to ask a question or make a comment you just press one and then i will go ahead and unmute you when i know that you do want to talk so i'll keep over here, you know, checking the switchboard to see if anybody does want to ask a question or make a comment. Uh, Domer Nieto, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly here in the chat room, is saying, or asking this question, is the invoking of the founders unusual for a DNC speech? I can't recall if Obama would even mention them 
in even such a twisted way as she has. I do recall Obama invoking the founders sometimes, but I can imagine that Hillary knew that this is her opportunity to try to rope in some of the people who Ted Cruz has steered away from Trump and steered away from Trump legitimately, right? Because he's told them, vote your conscience. And after Cruz did say that, you know, urge people to vote the conscience, I remember she tweeted something out about, yeah, vote your conscience, vote for me. And for a lot of people, if you are an altruist, right, if you believe that other people's needs constitute a claim, a moral claim on your life, which is majority of Americans today have that as a moral ideal, Voting your conscience might indeed mean voting for Hillary. You may not be in favor of government mandating you to, quote, be charitable. Uh, You might not like it done by force, but you may see Hillary Clinton as a much more moral option than Donald Trump if you are an altruist. If you are not an altruist, if you believe that you have the selfish right to your own existence. Not that you can traipse all over anybody else. You can't sacrifice other people to yourself. That's not what being selfish is, right? It is not in my interest to sacrifice you to me. I would not be getting any sort of a real human value. Human values come from the voluntary interaction between people. If you are forcing somebody else to interact with you in a way that you don't agree with, they don't agree with, That is not of value to you if you are a human being, if you are a healthy human being. Um, So, you know, this this idea that somehow you're going to achieve any sort of value by banding everybody together in a collective involuntarily using government force to, quote, create jobs and all this other stuff. It's ridiculous. Now, if you are of the idea that you have the right to the pursuit of happiness to your own individual happiness, you would likely be attracted at least to the spirit, the sense of life of Gary Johnson's campaign. And what I do have at the very end of the program notes at the blog at don'tletitgo.com is uh, there's going to be a documentary series, what they call a real-time docu-series called The Third Party Candidate about Gary Johnson and there's a video that I posted there that is the intro to that docu-series. And it's a very uplifting, very American in spirit trailer. I, I, I urge you to watch it. I'm not saying Gary Johnson is at all perfect. I've heard things from him that are far from perfect. But I do think that he has the American sense of life pretty firmly embedded in him. Uh, is it completely 100% unadulterated American sense of life? No, but it is in pretty darn good shape, and it is miles better than Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Another thing that you can look at is I have a Facebook friend, Mark Natickman, who was kind enough to write up as a publicly accessible note a report that he calls My Morning with Gary Johnson, and he tells you as someone who's an objectivist who sees himself as you know, sympathizing with Ayn Rand's philosophy, his honest assessment of Gary Johnson and why he's decided that he's going to vote for Johnson, uh, everything else considered. Now, I have a few other videos there, and one of them I alluded to, they're asking, did Bill Clinton fall asleep during Hillary's speech? And it does appear that he is falling asleep 
and uh, I think you'll get a kick out of that. Then they talk about the fact that there are hundreds of empty DNC seats for uh, either Hillary Clinton's speech or right after the speech. It's supposed to be prime time at the convention, and yet there's tons and tons and tons of empty seats. That He's saying this is not enthusiastic uh, voters by any stretch of the imagination. And then the third video is a much longer video. It is from the Aspen Security Forum, and a CNN journalist is interviewing James Clapper, who's the head of security. And if you go into that video and you start at about 3.20 or so, 3 minutes and 20 seconds or so, you can hear his reaction to the Democratic National Committee's reaction to the news that they have been hacked and exposed potentially by the Russians, right? He doesn't say that for sure it's the Russians. Uh, They haven't quite decided, I guess, within government whether either the Russians are the ones responsible or whether they actually want to announce out there that the Russians are, you know, do you want to give anybody the satisfaction of knowing that they've hacked the Russians, et cetera. Um, But, you know, he makes fun of it. It's like, you know, hacking as if this has never happened before. And, oh my gosh, you know, they're, they're acting as this is an unprecedented, horrible thing. Listen to Clapper. It's a, it's a pretty funny clip. I actually wonder if I should try to see if I can pull that clip up for you. Let me see if I can grab it in a fairly quick way. If I can, I'm going to try to play it for you. If you guys can bear with me here. Okay. Let's see. Ladies and gentlemen, we're about to begin uh, the next session. So yeah, I'm going to forward can, um, into where we need to Suspend your conversations and. Uh, uh, hey, David. No, I'm not uh, going to get a little. The- over this, I don't think we're quite ready yet to uh, make a call uh, on. That's about whether it's uh, the Russian. Um, I mean, we all know there are just a few u- uh, usual suspects out there. So, uh, but as in terms of the <clears throat> the process that we try to uh, stick to, uh, I don't think we're ready to make a, a public call on that yet. So, and is that because? you haven't made a decision to publicly name and shame or because there's still some uncertainty? Uh, a little both. Mm-hmm. A little both. Okay. Do you think that, uh, that we in, in the media, but also some officials who've been speaking to us in the media, have gotten ahead of the certainty on this? Yeah, I, I guess, uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I, I did, I, I, and frankly, uh, taken aback a bit by... Uh, Somewhat, uh, you know, hyperventilation over this. I mean, it, talking about the DNC you know, I'm here. I'm shocked. Uh, somebody did some hacking. Mm-hmm. That's never happened before. Um, so I, I just, and I think it's illustrative of uh, um, the need for us as a as a nation, as a people, to be. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pause it there. He goes on to talk about the fact that we're we sort of have to can resign ourselves to the fact that there's going to be a terrorist threat. He says, whether it's ISIL, Al Qaeda or any other group. And then he says, also, we have to realize that cybersecurity is going to be an issue for the foreseeable future as well. So there he was making fun of the DNC's reaction to all of this. Uh, So I think that was illustrative as well. 
Um, yeah, over here in the chat room, they're talking about all of my cool stuff in the program notes. I'm glad you guys are digging into the program notes. I, you know, there are people maybe who don't like to listen to podcasts and maybe they find the program notes of value independently. Feel free to share those around because there is a lot of good stuff in there as well. Uh, I have another Facebook friend, Brian Yoder, who I thank for tipping me onto this story here. Cash flow to Clinton Foundation amid Russian uranium deal. Uh, This is another thing you should remember about Hillary Clinton. People think she is the moral option, that Trump is the corrupt one, the one who's dealing in cronyism and stuff. But there is plenty of cronyism in Hillary's background as well. So the headline on the website, Pravda trumpeted President Vladimir Putin's latest coup, uh, nationalistic fervor recalling an era when the precursor served as the official mouthpiece of the Kremlin. And here it is, quote, Russian nuclear energy conquers the world. The article, January 2013, detailed how the Russian Atomic Energy Agency, Rosatom, had taken over a Canadian company with uranium mining stakes stretching from Central Asia to the American West. The deal made Rosatom one of the world's largest uranium producers, brought Putin closer to his goal of controlling much of the global uranium supply chain. But the untold story is one that involves not just the Russian president, but also a former American president and a woman who would like to be the next one. At the heart of the tale, and again, this is New York Times reporting this, so kudos to New York Times. They say at the heart of the tale are several men, leaders of the Canadian mining industry who have been major donors to the charitable endeavors of former President Bill Clinton and his family. Members of that group built, financed, and eventually sold off to the Russians, a company that would become known as Uranium One. They say, you know, at the time when they were uh, doing all this deal with the stock. It says, after the Russians announced the intention to acquire a majority stake in Uranium One, Mr. Clinton received $500,000 for a Moscow speech from a Russian investment bank with links to the Kremlin that was promoting Uranium One stock. At the time, both Rosatom and the United States government made promises intended to ease concerns about ceding control of the company's assets to the Russians. Those promises have been repeatedly broken, records show. New York Times examination of the deal, based on dozens of interviews as well as a review of public records and securities filings in Canada, Russia, and United States. Some of the connections between Uranium One and the Clinton Foundation were unearthed by Peter Schweitzer, a former fellow at the right-leaning Hoover Institution and author of the forthcoming book, Clinton Cash. Uh, By the way, I guess there's a video of Clinton Cash out there on YouTube that you can grab too. Uh, Mr. Schweitzer provided a preview to the Times, and they scrutinized the information and built upon it with its own reporting. They say whether the donations played any role in the approval of the uranium deal is unknown, but the episode underscores the special ethical challenges presented by the Clinton Foundation headed by a former president who relied heavily on foreign cash to accumulate $250 million in assets, even as his wife helped steer American foreign policy as Secretary of State, presiding over decisions with the potential to benefit the foundation's donors. 
more food for thought. If you're thinking of voting for Clinton as the answer to Trump. We've got other uh, people in the chat room talking about different videos, maybe the Clinton cash video, et cetera. Um, So do check that out and, you know, again, take it into account if you're going to make your voting decision this fall. Now, what else do I have? I've got a couple other things at the blog and they are completely off topic from what we have here. One is still at least semi in the realm of politics. And it was something that Rob Abiera sent me. This is the kind of thing that we may be up against at a certain point from ITV report dated July 20th headline four sentenced four have been sentenced for a bacon attack on a Bristol mosque says two men and women have been sentenced after attacking a mosque in Bristol where they threw bacon sandwiches at the building and tied a St. George's flag to the railings with the words, no mosque. Kevin Crean was jailed for 12 months. Mark Bennett was jailed for nine months. Allison Bennett was given a six-month suspended sentence, and Swales was given a four-month suspended sentence. The group have all been given a restraining order, preventing them from going within 100 meters of a mosque anywhere in England or Wales for the next 10 years. It says, during the indictment, the group shouted racial abuse at a member of the mosque. The quartet were identified by members of the public after police issued a CCTV image of them committing the offense. Now, throwing bacon at a mosque, I'm sure, does not do any significant appreciable damage. So if, you know, the rationale for these sentences, these extreme sentences, these jail terms, is some sort of a hate crime and, you know, again, the hate crime, the hate crime uh, rationale for increasing sentences for people is wrong. You know, it, what kind of damage was actually done? There was a slur, right? There shouldn't be punishment for just that. Any physical damage sounds like it was very, very minor. And so that there should not be jail terms for something like this. And yet there is in England, and maybe at some point under President Hillary Clinton, there might be here. And now... I've got something completely different. And, you know, sometimes I'm going to post and give you guys things that have to do just with improving your health or your lifestyle in general. Why? Because in a way, you know, I mean, yes, I want to support Gary Johnson. Do I actually realistically think he has any chance of winning? No. I hope to be shown wrong in the next 15 weeks or so because 15 weeks from now, the most likely outcome is going to be we're either going to have a President Hillary Clinton or a President Donald Trump. That is going to be the reality of our existence 15 weeks from today, a mere 15 weeks. And that's ridiculous um, to even think that, you know, this nightmare of an election season where we're all talking about, you know, who can we vote for? And it's been more of an intellectual game. If you really think of the reality of where we're going to be 15 weeks from now, I'll be here talking to you guys on a show and we're going to be absorbing. Is it going to be Clinton? Is it going to be Trump? We don't know. Maybe most likely Clinton. She's showing herself to be the more reasonable of the two alternatives, even though as I've shown here, she's a complete collectivist that you should be very worried about with all the cronyism of Donald Trump to boot. And it, and it's very alarming cronyism because 
of the foreign influence factor that has, you know, again, come, come into play a lot more with her than it would with Trump, right, because of the steering of policy that's already been involved. Um, scary, very, very scary, but probably one of those two. And given that it's probably going to be one of those two, what are we all going to have to do? We're going to have to keep trying to fight for the future to the extent that we can. And in the process, we need to keep making our own lives as good as we can make them right in the process, because we need to keep our own morale up. This fight is probably going to take a lot longer than we thought for a while. We had the idea that maybe a Ted Cruz could win this election cycle. Now we're thinking maybe we can get Ted Cruz in 2020. We have to keep ourselves in shape to survive. And with that, with the keeping in shape theme, New York Times had an article just two days ago, headline, being unfit may be almost as bad for you as smoking. There's a lot of comparisons out there about, you know, what is as bad for you as smoking. I've seen sitting for extended period of time has been said to be as bad for you as smoking. And now it is being unfit. And, you know, with the, with the sitting stuff, they say, even if you are fit, right, you exercise for an hour a day or something. Nonetheless, if you spend extended periods of time sitting, that is very bad for you and perhaps as bad as smoking. Now they're saying being unfit itself is bad for you. They say being out of shape could be more harmful to health and longevity than most people expect, according to a new long-term study of middle-aged men. The study finds that poor physical fitness may be second only to smoking as a risk factor for premature death. It's not news, they say, that aerobic capacity can influence lifespan. Many past epidemiological, epidemiological, yes, I can say that 12 times fast, epidemiological, yeah, studies have found that people with low physical fitness tend to be at high risk of premature death. Conversely, people with robust aerobic capacity are likely to live long lives. Most of those studies followed people for about 10 to 20 years, which is a lengthy period of time for science, nowhere near most of our actual lifespans. Some of those studies also enrolled people who were already elderly or infirm, which they say makes it difficult to extrapolate the findings to younger, healthier people. But do go check it out, and you might decide that you'll be doing what I've been doing lately. Uh, if you guys have the Apple Watch, I'm a big fan of Apple, as you all know. Uh, the Apple Watch is a little bit, to use the term loosely, of a Nazi in the sense that it allows you to set certain goals, right? So it, you can choose, for example, how many calories you would like to burn through moving your body around through the course of the day. You actually can select a number. Maybe you can't go, go below a certain number. I, I wouldn't know because I haven't, I guess, tried to set it low enough that Apple would say, no, 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 you can't do that. It has to be at least a certain amount. But, you know, there's reasonable fluctuation there. What is not at all mutable, according to Apple, is that you should exercise a minimum of 30 minutes per day. It's got to be 30 minutes per day. You're not allowed to change that as your goal. And moreover, um, the other thing, too, is that you're not allowed to stand for some portion of an hour any fewer than 12 hours per day. So you can't be sitting all this time. Those are the two things that Apple thinks is necessary for your health. So if you buy the Apple Watch, it will tell you you need to go out there 30 minutes a day. Now, I'm not doing it seven days a week myself, but I'm doing it five days a week. 
And given that it's summer in Southern California and it's extremely hot out there, I have given myself the goal of getting that out of the way early, early, early in the day because 90 degrees is nothing to uh, to exercise in. So you might choose to do something like that yourself. Take this as a bit of a wake-up call if you are one of the people that would characterize yourself as unfit. You know, just because you're thin, too, doesn't mean that you are fit. There are a lot of us who would throw ourselves in the category of what we call skinny flabby, and you need to go out there and, and build some strength, and particularly, as the article says, aerobic capacity. So that's me on my fitness soapbox for the week. And uh, let me go over here and check in the chat room and check on the switchboard. No, I've got nobody on, on the switchboard is wanting to, to add what I've got here. Uh, Arjun says, is the Apple Watch more than just a gimmick? No, it's definitely not. You know, one of the things I really like about the Apple Watch, besides the fact that it does have these, um, you know, sort of fitness wristband features, incorporated in it. It is actually a watch, right? And so you've got your, you know, time in your time zone and you can also have in the upper left-hand corner of the watch time in a different time zone if for some reason you want to keep track of time elsewhere in the world. They have the the world time feature. You've got the temperature, the outside temperature in the top right of the watch which is, you know, it's useful information to have at a glance and you also have your very next calendar appointment across the bottom of the watch face uh, there and there's notifications that it can give you as well. Uh, it can give you notifications of your phone calls. It can give you notifications. If you have VIP email messages, it can give you notifications from Facebook, from Instagram, maybe from Twitter. I've never even tried to have it give me any notifications from, from Twitter. I, I haven't done that, but I have seen notifications from uh, Facebook and Instagram there. So, there's a, a lot of cool things. And, and the thing that's good about the watch is suppose you're in the presence of somebody else and you get either a phone call or a text message or something like that. Things that you might usually pull your phone out and take a look at to see if it's anything you need to address and then put your phone away and then you know, pay attention to the person who you're actually with. Uh, in this case, all you do is you glance at your watch really quickly. You don't have to go through the whole thing women, you know, in particular, like pulling it out of our purses and stuff like that can be a pain. And as long as the watch is in the same room as the phone, you can get the necessary information right through the watch. You can answer phone calls on the watch as well. So like if, uh, if you're a woman with a bottomless purse where your phone can get just buried below all kinds of stuff and it's really hard to get out before the phone, you know, the caller hangs up or, or gives up or has to go to voicemail, you can answer it right there on your watch. So there's a lot. Um, Arjun says, maybe the next generation, I felt the first two generations were weak. Perhaps they are improving the features. But I got myself the very cheapest of the first generation so that I could play with it, be the first on my block, so to speak. And then later, maybe like you said, maybe the next generation one, maybe that's the time that I think I'm going to replace it and it's going to be really awesome. And I'll definitely enjoy that. Okay, so let me go. I have one last story that I haven't mentioned today. So it's been pretty good for program notes. I think I budgeted it just about right given that I had intended to spend about an hour on Clinton's speech. I hope you guys did find that a valuable exercise. One of those two, like I said, 15 weeks from now, one of those two is going to be our president. 
And what are we going to be dealing with? I think we're going to know that from the speeches that they give. Another article I have Brian Yoder to thank for is this one from Express UK. Brexit boom. We're, we're starting to see the results already, or at least early results of Brexit. UK business deals are up by 800% just in the one month following the EU referendum. 800% in one month. It says British companies have raked in tens of billions in new deals, eightfold increase in the space of one month in a business bonanza since the UK voted to leave the European Union. Some 60 deals have been done in the month since Brexit that are worth £26.3 billion. This is in contrast to the deals done in the month before the referendum, just $3.2 billion. One of the biggest deals has been the acquisition of chip designer ARM Holdings by Japan's SoftBank. Anyway, um, I'm, I'm being told that my time is almost up with you guys here uh, in my ear. So I'll leave you to read about these deals. But what's the message? That freedom is the thing that's going to bring prosperity. Even the promise or the prospect of possible freedom is creating a huge economic boom in the UK. And if we actually voted for somebody who is going to free up, truly free up our economy here in the United States, we could expect the same as well. And of those three in weeks to come, I'm going to be looking a little more at Gary Johnson to see whether he's somebody that we might think of voting for. I would least, at least like to support Gary Johnson, get him up to 15% so we can see him in the debates, the not evil one next to the immoral ones. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Go to don'tletitgo.com to continue the conversation. And otherwise, I will talk to you next week.